0: Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD, pro physique athlete, back again on another episode on Swole Radio with Dr. Eric Helms. You can see that his face is getting more and more chiseled as he goes through contest prep, and we'll be getting to that later. But today we're going to be talking about fat loss, and this is going to be really useful for anyone who wants to improve their body composition and clearing up a lot of myths out there in the fitness community. Thanks for being on the show, Eric
1: always a pleasure to be on thank you so much for having me doc
0: all right so we're going to be getting into the nitty-gritty of getting shredded which eric is an expert on and maybe just to start off eric when planning fat loss with a new client in broad strokes how do you approach it what are the first things you think about and kind of what order the big
1: things are, are just kind of getting an idea of the landscape Like, where are they at? Are they struggling just to maintain their current weight? Are they gaining weight? What kind of skills do they have, like life skills that are are useful to body composition change? What is their relationship with their body, so their motivation to lose fat, um, which could be unrelated to their their relationship with their body. They might be looking to lose fat because they want to compete in a palsy meet, for example. Um, And what is their relationship with food? and then game planning the time course. That's probably the biggest logistical thing that is unrelated to kind of a la- that, that landscape aspect that I talked to. Um, many, 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 many fat loss diets, especially contest preps, because people are not aware of just how lean you need to get to be successful, fail before they start because they have a misconception on how long it's gonna take and don't have uh, plans in place to account for you know, the inevitable plateaus or just life circumstances that change to that, that, that make it so that there's a period of death space where you can't be losing, or perhaps where you shouldn't be losing. You know, if there's a vacation coming up, or a period of very difficult work requires mental focus, or uh, not being physically fatigued, or something like that. So advanced planning is, is the name of the game when it comes to successful fat loss strategies. Uh, you'll notice I didn't say anything about um, I need to figure out what their maintenance caloric intake is, or... Uh, historically, what have they used? Higher carb or lower carb diets, um, or are they aware of the the latest, you know, uh, fat burning thermogenic supplement that increases your metabolic rate by a whopping three calories? So, um, all of those things are way down the totem pole of importance, and all this other stuff is incredibly important.
0: Yeah, I really like what you said about thinking about the. Your calendar year, you know, in terms of planning things. Like, I find that really helpful when scheduling in mini cuts or looking at contest prep, where you can really save yourself a lot of grief by, like, actually planning your diet in a convenient time for you, where, you know, maybe Christmas holidays aren't the perfect time to just place an aggressive two week mini cut. And right. yeah, just thinking ahead in a way that will allow you to, you know, balance out your life as well. Mm hmm. Yeah, maybe putting this in the context more of starting out with, you know, general fat loss rather than necessarily like the end stages of contest prep. First of all, when you're working, but say we're still talking about advanced people like bodybuilders. Sure. How do you recommend people approach fat loss more more like the off-season context, like people doing just a cut or a mini cut?
1: Yeah. So if someone is, is their goal is to put on muscle mass over time, uh, that requires a surplus. It doesn't require a surplus, but it is at times most usefully and effectively done with the surplus. Right. And that surplus, even if it is over a long time scale, if you're doing kind of the gain taining approach will inevitably result in a higher accrual of body fat, especially like you said, when I'm talking about advanced people. So like if we take an advanced natural bodybuilder, um, taking a, a to like a, an every other year competition approach you know so they've got basically you know a three to four month period post prep to recover to a place where they actually have the mental hormonal and physical environment and ability to sleep and recover to where they actually can be putting on new muscle mass again they've got basically assuming a six month contest prep period uh... twelve to sixteen months of gaining time right so the balance there is that you're trying to put on as much muscle as you can while not creating a situation where you're starting too high above your contest contest weight uh, when you do start the diet in a year and a half to where you have to crash diet uh, and risk the muscle loss of anything you might have gained in that 14 to 16 month period of gaining, right? Mm. So the the typical way that to alleviate this, and this is really only relevant to competitors because you're not a competitor, you don't have to kind of play with this uh up and down uh scenario to the same degree uh is that you do mini cuts interspersed in this process Uh, and the mini cuts are basically going to need to be implemented on an as-needed basis to keep you within quote-unquote striking distance and to give you runway to to gain weight so I'll use myself as an example just because it's easy Uh, my competition weight is roughly 80 kilos Um, and as far as where do I hang out and where am I post recovery after my food focus goes down and all that stuff, it's typically in the range of like 85 to 90 kilos, right? And then I typically give myself an upper end of the mid nineties before I then decide to cut back down. Now if I'm competing next year after next. I'm not going to let myself get all the way up to 95 or 96 like I did this last time. Because now I am 16, 17 kilos over stage weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the Americans listening, that's 35, 36 pounds, 37 pounds over stage weight. And that is what we're, you know, for me, I know historically, that's a 10-month diet if I want to get in stage weight from there, which is probably a little longer than ideal. Um, and that's 10, that, that'd be like 9, 10-month month diet of dieting not a six or seven month diet and then eating up for a couple months. Like it's ideal for myself when I want to look my best. So that means if I'm competing year after next, I'm probably going to restrict myself to only getting up to about 90 kilos or 20, 22, 21 pounds over stage weight. So that means each time I bump up against that number where my body weight starts with a nine, that triggers the decision to do a mini cut where I'm trying to drop, say, two to three kilos or five to six pounds of actual body fat, not just food bulk (laughs) and water weight, which will happen pretty quick. And then repeat that process. Now for that to occur without me spending the vast majority of those 14 to 16 months in this on and off state of dieting, that means that I have to be reasonably conservative in the surplus I use. Mm -hmm. So let's say I, I finish my recovery at 86 kilos. And then I spend four months getting up to 90. And then I spend a month and a half or maybe one month mini cutting. And I repeat that process. So I'm kind of right at the edge of what I think is acceptable for the frequency of mini cuts um, as a, as a decent heuristic, like a four to one ratio of the time spent in surplus versus the time spent in a calorie deficit is a completely made up ratio that I find anecdotally gives people enough time to, to make progress. So in the situation of myself, you know, bouncing between the mid-80s up to, the, up to around 90 or 91 kilos, cutting down uh, in the process of four to five weeks, but then spending, um, you know, 13 weeks or so uh, in, in a surplus, trying to get back up to there each time, knowing that the majority of what I'll gain as an advanced natural bodybuilder is body fat, but also trying to create that ideal hormonal environment so that I can put on muscle mass, recover, see progress in the gym, stay motivated, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that's that's kind of what that, that, that process looks like when someone is competing every other year. And you can see that you're kind of threading a needle. And for me personally, in addition to the fact that I have strength-related competitive goals, um, mm-hmm. that's why I don't compete every other year. Um, and I'm also, this is going to sound like I'm boosting myself up more than I should be, I'm a very advanced natural bodybuilder, and I don't mean that in terms of I'm competing for WNBF Pro titles. <laughs> I'm actually still trying to get my WNBF Pro card, but I mean that in terms of how close am I to my capacity because mm-hmm. I've been training for nearly 20 years, and I have attempted to put on muscle mass faster than is possible and been disappointed the last three times I've tried to do that, right? Mm-hmm. So um, and it's not for lack of trying. Some of the things that I have uh, you know, instituted – as far as pushing the extremes of volume frequency intensity uh stretching daily for an hour uh, in a boot <laughs> to the point where your foot goes numb he's done it and all. It, did, it did work a little bit i got a little bit on my calves and they are looking the best they ever have but um if i sat down with you with an investment portfolio and i said hey here's the amount of time you'll have to invest here's how it's going to feel uh, and here's what you're going to get out of it, you'd say, no, thanks. You know, <laughs> if, we're just, if you're purely from like a venture capitalist perspective. Um, but anyway, so if you are competing like one year on, two years off, one year on, now all of a sudden you can let the rope out a little more. And for me now we're looking at 93, 94, 95, right? And the, the time spent in a surplus can also increase. You can change that from, you know, four months on, one month off, to five or six months on, one month off just so long as you're eventually in a position for when you start prep that you have the ability to start at the lowest body fat possible without being dieted. Mm. Um, And that's kind of what that looks like for a competitor. Now, that was maybe more specific of an answer to your question as far as uh, like an off-season competitor than you wanted. I don't know if you want a general fat loss uh, kind of timing or or, or timelines, but hopefully that gives people the idea of, of what things they're
0: juggling. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it where for contest prep, one of the most important factors in determining your success is where you start, you know, in the place you start and the amount of time you give yourself. And I think that's where a lot of beginners fall short or just miss because they, they just have too much fat to lose and they mm-hmm. didn't keep it tight over the, the off offseason. Having interspersed mini cuts is also my approach. I find that to be the most effective In terms of, yeah, more general athletes, let's say we're talking about someone who's advanced, but not actually competing or not competing for a long time. What would your recommendation be for them?
1: Yeah, then the um, the approach becomes much more dealer's choice. Um, I think you absolutely could take a much slower taining approach Hmm. to where the scale weight change you know, like the example I gave, you know, we were, we were looking at a kilo gained per month or roughly, you know, two pounds. That may seem slow to some people depending upon their context. I don't think it's really that slow for an advanced level natural. Um, and, you know, that amounts to, you know, 200, 300 calorie surplus per day. Um, so it's, it's certainly something, right? Um, cutting that in half and, you know, gaining something like, you know, a pound a month, <laughs> you know, like real slow. Mm-hmm. Um, is something you absolutely can do, and you can then spend a, a full close to a full year, a full calendar year without really seeing too much of gain in body fat, just making sure that your body weight's slowly ticking up. And knowing that the proportion will probably be as good as it can be so long as your training uh, is really effective and efficient as far as how much muscle you're getting versus how much fat. It still will be majority fat, and that's something people need to accept at a certain stage in their career, unless there are large gaps in what they've been doing or, or completely like, oh, I've never trained legs before or something like that. Um, but that means that, let's say, if you put you know 10 pounds on in, in, in a calendar year and 7 pounds of it is fat, 3 pounds is muscle, it's going to look a little better than if you did that in a shorter period just by the nature of kind of being capped at how quickly you can put on muscle. But you're still gaining 7 pounds of fat, right? So that means that these mini cuts would be coming uh, far less frequently, and you're having much more time where you just don't have to sort of worry about that, quote unquote. Um, and some people prefer that mentally. Other people don't, and they like to see a little more contrast. Hmm. But I would still kind of say, hey, look from an optimization perspective, from a you know kind of like efficiency standpoint, I guess you could say. I wouldn't go any faster than that first example of like a four to one kind of, uh, you know, ratio. So like the example I gave four months, gaining a kilo a month or two pounds, and then losing that in one month, that's kind of where any more than that, I think they're spending too much time dieting. And it also, if they can't do that, it gives you a really good mental indication of where they're at. Because what that inevitably means is that they are not able to control their surplus in mm-hmm. the bulking phases, right? And a lot of people, they focus on what they need to do during the fat loss phase when the actual issue is what are their baseline behaviors, which are sometimes caused by their fat loss phases. Like they, they crash diet, and, yet, and we've all experienced this. Anyone who's competed knows that it's really easy to put on 20 pounds in a couple months. But when you think about how hard it is to put on 20 pounds in a couple months in a natural state, right, um, that's like force feeding, you know? That's some IFBB pro shit like, oh, I'm taking a bunch of gear and I have the capacity to gain a bunch of muscle right now. So I need to force feed myself to take advantage of this super physiological state where I can gain a ton of tissue. Um, But what that really looks like in a natural athlete is I have a unhealthy relationship with food or at least I'll say a non conducive relationship with with food. Um, and that is something that should prompt uh, some, some self-introspection for non-coached athletes, and for coaches, they should sit down and have an honest conversation with their athlete, like, hey, it seems like every time we do this four months of bulking, we need to do that mini cut, and it has to be aggressive, because you're gaining a pound a week, even though I've, I've you know, our, our guidance when we sit down together is to gain half that, So, so what's up, and at this point, you can kind of look under the hood and figure out behaviorally what's going on and it may be that they're just trying to stay too lean uh, it may be that their overall stress levels need to be addressed it may be it could be something mechanical like um, you know their food choices when they're in a surplus are drastically different to their food choices when they're cutting um, they go from eating out all the time highly palatable foods high energy density you know treats chocolate, you know, a lot of things that, uh, you know, chip snack food, and they kind of just go, right, I hit my protein, and that's all that matters, right? In um, those athletes, the goal is to start slowly introducing more and more fruits and vegetables, whole grains and lean meats, and low-fat dairy options, um, or the equivalent if they're vegans or vegetarian. Uh, and uh, the reason I say slowly is because they will actually need some time to – acclimate to enjoying those foods because obviously if they're if they're going ham on burritos chocolate and burgers and chips in the off season that's what they like to eat and of course everybody likes to eat that for the most Sounds part it's like a good time right you know um but that's not to say that if you learn some cooking skills learn some seasoning skills and get simply used to and try a variety of vegetables fruits um and, and lean meats and, and actually know what you're doing. A lot of these times these, these people just don't necessarily have the skills. Like you look at them, what they do during contest prep and it's like really plain and they're like, they're suffering through it and they're following this bro diet and they think it's supposed to be hard anyway, but they don't actually know how to incorporate fruits, vegetables, lean meats and all these foods that are uh, much more likely to be satiating mechanically and also potentially pretty enjoyable. You know, it's it's not like you can't have a healthy diet that is uh, that is satisfying and enjoyable. You just don't want it to be hyper palatable, right? So shifting them over slowly uh, and and actually honestly talking about like, like like, do you know how to cook, bro? You know, <laughs> like this kind of thing. And, uh, and what decisions do you make when shopping? And, and like what things have you been exposed to? You kind of might have to have some of these people get a little more uh, – Similarity between the qualitative aspects of their diet when cutting versus the off season. They don't have to go extreme, and obviously, it's going to look different for everybody. But for me, for example, when people see me eat lunch, they always think I'm in contest prep. And mm-hmm. that's, and it's, an, I don't like, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't have orthorexia. And I, like I said, I get up to 95 kilos, I do it slowly. I have a great relationship. I just don't care that much about food. Uh, and I do enjoy, uh, fruits, vegetables, lean meats and all those types of things and, and dairy. And, and I'm also just very – I I'm, I get more enjoyment out of uh, thinking about my long-term bodybuilding goals than I do out of short-term food satisfaction. Now, that changes post-contest, like legitimately. Like, like a donut is more important to me in the moment than satisfying my long-term bodybuilding goals. And that's true for most people. That's why we gain 22 pounds in a month, right? But the goal is to get to the point where – um, that value proposition makes sense, and it doesn't feel restrictive to do so. And um, that, that can take a while, and the end product is going to look a little bit different for everyone else. But essentially, you're just trying to bring the rope in a little bit. And I would consider it a win if that person who is struggling not to gain a pound every week comes down to three-quarters of a pound every week. Because then all of a sudden, it's 25% more efficient as far as when and how much they need to the mini-cut. Um, a little more similarity between the two it's a little less of this rude awakening when they start a diet there's more skills that transfer over uh, and often what happens like you were saying which is so important they start their contest prep diet a little leaner and they're able to get a little leaner as, as a consequence so yeah a, a lot of planning for fat loss is making sure that the skills behaviors mindset uh, food appreciation and uh, kind of settling point if you will for their body
0: composition is optimized in the off season yeah lots unpacked back there first of all i really like what you're talking about in terms of looking at the efficiency of your bulking to cutting where i really like this concept of the bulk to cut ratio of how much time you're spending bulking versus cutting and you said yeah you kind of want to be at a minimum of about four to one which i agree with and the for nat- for us as naturals a lot of the most of the muscle growth when you get advanced happens when you're bulking like being in a surplus is more favorable for hypertrophy and you really want to maximize the amount of time you're spending there uh, if possible and i also like the approach of you know if someone doesn't necessarily have contest prep coming up of as you mentioned the longer time scale approach where i just think that when you're a little bit closer to maintenance calories it's a it's more sustainable whereas Mm -hmm. like i prefer people being in smaller surpluses rather than you know having very wide variations and the the part about the habits I think makes a big difference like food choices where you see a lot of people where you'll say oh I'm bulking and then suddenly it's any any opportunity to hang out it's like let's go get fried chicken or let's get burgers and fries and oh what are we getting for dessert instead of you know things that they wouldn't have necessarily even been doing before and just having every opportunity to just have like chips or whatever kind of snack they can, they can put down. And you, you, and the thing is, is that your taste palette becomes acclimatized where yep. like lately I've really been shifting towards more just whole food based meals and lots of fruits and veggies. And after like, after you, when you switch over to that from a lot of like really tasty stuff at first, it seems very dry, but eventually your taste buds recalibrate and then you get to the point where, you know, you bite into a strawberry and you like, wow, this tastes great. And you, y- your body just becomes normalized. Ultimately, I think that a lot of the foods we have access to in our modern cultures is is uh, super physiologic in terms of taste.
1: Absolutely. It's been engineered, you know, and this is something that most athletes get kind of forced into getting normalized during prep and they start to taste how good their carrot is. You know, it gets a little ridiculous, don't get me wrong, yeah. cuz it's also <laughs> modified by the fact that you're starving. But think about it like some point, let's say you have a 30 week prep. 12 weeks in, you're typically not suffering too much. You know, you're 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 approaching beach lean, you look great compared to all your friends, but you're you're by no means at an unsustainable body fat level typically, nor are you on super super low calories or super high energy expenditure cardio, so you're not typically super super food focused yet. And if you are 12 weeks into a 30 week diet, something needs to change. (laughs) So um, that means that but for three months, you've been eating mostly quote unquote, prep foods, and you're like, man, this strawberry is really sweet. And in the off season, you'd be like, why why am I going to eat a strawberry? You know, so there's two Mm -hmm. different mindsets. And the trick is that when you then transition out of prep, and you do your recovery diet, yes, you want to be in a big surplus. But you want to keep the structure of your prep diet intact, what we call the baseline diet at 3DMJ, the skeleton of your diet, your fruit, vegetable, lean meat kind of structure or lean protein source, I should say, at each meal, and then add some things on top of that, instead of completely jettisoning all you know, whole whole fruit, uh, vegetables, lean meats, and um, low-fat dairy and You know whole grains from your diet you simply go awesome and i'm going to have a donut tonight after dinner or awesome and let's go get ice cream because yeah yeah like we do just need more calories but we want you to maintain the appreciation and the inclusion of those foods uh, in your diet and not have them be all of a sudden become dominated and totally shift your uh, like you're you're saying your experience of palatability now, don't get me wrong, sometimes when you introduce ice cream or a dessert at a restaurant to someone who has thought that strawberries are sweet, you can be like, oh my God, this is liquid sex and I'm 100% a crack addict now and I can get pretty out of hand. So this is something you have to do on an individual by individual basis and maybe you don't go for those hyper palatable options and you have no problem just eating a crap ton more of the clean foods, quote unquote, clean foods that you're eating in prep and that sometimes is a more controllable uh, strategy. Um I have experienced both, you know. So uh, and, and coached both. So I think that's really something important to consider. And um so yeah, what this looks like can can vary individual by individual quite substantially, but it is uh pretty important to to get this aspect right and there's a lot of subtleties here.
0: hmm Yeah. We're trying to push people away from that flipping the switch mentality where it's like, Oh I'm yes. I'm in contest prep and now I'm off season and it's just like uh, just bonanza, right? Where yeah. they're just running around the candy shop. You
1: know, and Bill, it's going to inevitably happen during the, the post contest period during the recovery diet. But the goal of the recovery diet is to recover from that mindset. Right. And one of the things that is a red flag for me when I'm working with a competitor in the off season, because I know if we don't fix it now, it's going to be a massive problem, uh, post prep, and they're going to gain like 40 pounds, not 20 post season. Is their mentality around mini cuts and transitions to them and away from them? So I would say there is a, a problem to be fixed if you are really excited at the end of a mini cut to get back to bulking, right? If you're on week four of four of your mini cut and you're like, I cannot wait to get back to back to bulking. This is going to be amazing. That's basically the opposite of what you want. What it should really be is that when the mini con- cut comes up. You're annoyed because you have to take a break from making progress, and you want to get in there quick and dirty and get this, you know, deficit out of the way, drop a handful of pounds of body fat, so you can get back to making progress. And you're non-plussed, you're not phased, and you have almost no symptoms of dieting during those four weeks. You're a little tired of food, um, or at least, you know, like like I said, this is going to depend on how long you have between competitions. If you're competing every other year and you're staying like in my example between let's say eighty-five and ninety kilos as my kind of off-season runway, which again is only like 12 to 20-ish pounds over stage weight the whole time, I'm always going to be a little more food interested than when I'm doing the same thing but moving from 15 to 25 pounds over stage weight, right? So if that's the case, yeah, you, you can be a little more excited. But ideally, the goal is to be in a mindset where the mini cut is the annoyance, not the bulk that you're coming back to after the mini cut is like, yes, back to burritos, you know? Um, and because again, if, if a mini cut does that to you, what will a 30-week diet that gets you down to single-digit percentage body fat do to you? And it's not going to be pretty. So when I see that in the off-season, I go, right, we're not, we really shouldn't prep or do any kind of extensive fat loss phase until that gets corrected. And we need to then trace that back, follow that thread to figure out what is the root cause of that.
0: Yeah, and I think I'm glad we're talking about this because I think sometimes these sorts of long term habit based recommendations don't necessarily get brought up as much, where people are just hyper focused on like macros or these mm. are the mechanics of how you're gonna, you know, set up a meal plan or something like that. In terms of planning those cuts interspersed, you know, throughout the off season, how do you view or maybe even backing up, how would you define a mini cut and how would you differentiate this from other types of cuts and who would they be for?
1: Yeah, so mini cuts, I pretty much exclusively reserve for um, people who I would consider competitors, um, even if they don't actively compete, but maybe they're trying to maintain a certain body composition, they're a high level non-competitive bodybuilder, but someone who would absolutely identify as a bodybuilder because they're Mm -hmm. putting forth extreme effort um, to, you know, improve their physique in some manner. Um, because in all of the circumstances it, circumstances, it probably just makes sense to do a longer cut, if that's where you need to be, and then move back towards you know maintenance or something like that. So a lot of people who are interested in bodybuilding content and body recomposition content, or people who have a lot of body fat to lose, and then they want to get down to something and then maintain it, right? And a mini cut's different than that. The The, the mini cut the goal of it is to control body fat to then allow you to keep gaining, right? So mm-hmm. for someone who's not a bodybuilder, you're typically experiencing this, this, this weird goal of improving my, my body, but which largely occurs through fat loss, an extended period. And then at the end of that, I'm going to go to a maintenance period, see if I can maintain it, learn to live in a smaller body with less body fat, train like that, eat it, maintenance, figure out if I can sustain this and try not to rebound. And then once they've accomplished that, it's been a year or so. And you're like, oh, shoot, I've actually done a good job of maintaining my fat loss. Then they start to consider the process of actually gaining weight, but this time, hopefully muscle. So that looks very, very different from the person who's implementing a mini cut, where the body fat gain is, in, is an intentional process. Well, I should say it's the body fat gain is an inevitable consequence of the intentional process of repeatedly trying to put on muscle size and then controlling the body fat gain. So I think mini cuts really only apply in the circumstance of people who are uh, quote unquote bodybuilders. And I typically define them as something that lasts longer, sorry, no longer than, than six to eight weeks tops. Um, mm-hmm. If you're dieting for more than two months, like that's that's a pretty long diet um, and that you're probably a little more aggressive than you otherwise would be, and that you're doing it at a body fat level that is on the higher end of what you can comfortably sustain without trying, I should say. Like if a mini cut takes you down to like far below your lower intervention point, it's not a mini cut to control body fat. You're actually dieting to a point that's counterproductive for the for the goals of putting on muscle mass. And I think that's mm-hmm. an important distinction too. So. I think people are pretty much on board with the idea that getting leaner doesn't facilitate more improved muscle gains, right? The whole P ratio thing is relatively misunderstood and unfortunately only really has one direction. So as you put on more and more body fat, yeah, you're probably more likely to put on more body fat, but unfortunately as you get leaner and leaner, the thing you're most likely to put on when you go to the other direction is body fat. Uh, and at best, there's no advantage, and at worst, the data actually might be a little bit the opposite, based on some of the analyses, kind of the in-house participant-level uh, meta-analysis that Trexler and colleagues did, uh, where if you get really, really lean, you're more likely to actually put on body fat, and that mm-hmm. actually lines up with what we see in studies of competitors who are so shredded that they're, you know, experiencing hypoandrogenism, like low testosterone, they can't sleep. Uh, The recovery is poor, performance is down, fatigue is high, subjectively they feel stressed. Your body is going to preferentially put on body fat, we've seen from overfeeding from an incredibly lean state. Uh, But there is probably some continuum of that. So like, let's say, for example, I'll use myself and I'm hanging out from 85 to 90 and this I'm competing every other year, Eric's decided to become a full-time, every other year competitive bodybuilder, right? Which is not full-time. Some people do it every year, which I think is just very, very challenging and requires having a very low, uh, you know, settling point, uh, being a very experienced competitor, very good at fat loss, and having the mental game, quote-unquote, on lock, and also being comfortable basically looking the same every, other, every every year and maybe five seasons from now noticing you look a little better on stage. So it's, it's a challenge. And if you're a world champion, then freaking go for it, right? But um, for the rest of us mortals, I don't recommend competing every year. So anyway, in that scenario where I'm bouncing from 85 to 90 – some my question, well, why not go all the way down to stage weight and then just you know, gain from there? Well, it's because I'm A, going to lose some muscle in the process of doing that, mm-hmm. and then B, I'm going to not be able to control the weight gain after that mini cut because it's getting to stage weight. So for me personally, I'll, I'll use my experience of contest prep. I've been dieting since mid-February. Just in the last three weeks, Bill, have I noticed that I'm struggling to stay asleep for more than four hours at a time. And... I'm taking a diet break this week because I'm competing in a competition, uh, a powerlifting meet and I want to be in good shape for it. During my diet break, I have been able to sleep, but I'm at a, a level of body composition right now where if I go into a deficit at all, it's like slipping off of a tightrope. You know? I could fast, like I, I, 93 kilos, I could not eat anything for a whole day, be mildly hungry and sleep through the night no problem. Mm-hmm. But at 83 kilos, right now I woke up at 83.7 this morning which is up from my depleted weigh-in of like six that I had last week before the diet break. So anyway, in the 83s, which is again, basically 7 or 8 pounds over stage weight, as soon as I slip into a deficit, can't sleep. And I also feel fatigued. I notice the difference. So I'm basically on a tightrope. And as I get even leaner and leaner and leaner, and I'm closer to 81, 82, or even 80 kilos or 79, at that point... Even when I'm at maintenance or in a slight surplus, I still feel a little off and I can't sleep. So there is an, a tipping point, not a hard threshold, but again, more of a continuum for everybody, where there is such a thing as being so lean that it's counterproductive. And that is, there's no reason to mini cut to there. And by definition, if you are cutting to that point, even if it only lasts four weeks, it's not a mini cut because uh, you're doing something that is uh, against the guidelines. And and the rationale of why you would do a mini cut, which is to control body fat to facilitate gaining. So you're not controlling body fat, you're cutting far past where you should be. And it's not facilitative, it's actually debilitative towards your gaining process. So the requirements are short, a couple weeks, sorry, a couple months at most, uh, and only to a point that is kind of within your lower and upper interve- intervention point ranges to facilitate further gaining and give you more runway, so you don't accumulate more body fat than is conducive to your
0: goals. Mm hmm. And then maybe zooming out a bit for maybe including some less experienced people if someone has a lot of weight to lose how do you approach that
1: yeah that is very individual um and i think the biggest thing is that there should be a discussion with the person on kind of what motivates them how do they get in this place in the first place and what is their their plans long term anytime i'm dealing with someone with a lot of weight to lose Um, the first thing I want to know is, have they lost this weight previously? And if the answer is yes, meaning that this is not their first go trying to lose this amount of weight, more often than not, the issue I see is that they get focused on the fat loss phase in and of itself without necessarily keeping sight of the goal of losing the weight and maintaining it. So that Mm -hmm. means they take relatively aggressive approaches. They kind of have an all-in mentality it's very impressive, like they start doing cardio every day, they totally shift the foods they eat, and sometimes even for six months, you know, they can go hard and lose at a very high rate, and they're very good at the actual fat loss phase, but the unfortunate thing is that they're building up this increased desire to then do the opposite of it, so this restriction is then prompting the subsequent weight regain that occurs, or at least making it more likely, Um, and this is the type of person who typically sees a week where they didn't have measurable scale weight change as a failure. They get stressed when they step on the scale, uh, and, they, and they but they'll tell you, no, I like to see fast weight loss. It's motivating. And that's true, but it also is indicative of a mindset issue. So if someone else is going right, the goal is to eventually maintain weight. So any and all progress is getting me there. And even maintaining my weight currently, it's a step in the right direction and i'm in no rush to get there you know i'm i'm let's say i'm i'm 45 i'm going to live another ideally like 45 years so why am i so focused on the next 6 months would it be the end of the world if i got there in 2 years at the age of 47 and then could maintain it and once they get to once they tick over to that mentality then things go a lot better and um This is the type of person who, when you suggest a diet break because they're vacationing or they're just a little stressed or they just don't have the mental energy to focus on the diet, they go yes instead of trying to figure out a way to white knuckle and stay on the deficit. Um, When they're in that mentality, that's great. Not only does that indicate that they're not attached to achieving some arbitrary level of weight loss in an arbitrary amount of time, but that they're attached to the long-term change and, and, and maintenance of that change. And it also has the added benefit of when they do this diet break, for example, they get to practice what it's like to be at whatever reduced weight they are from their, their starting point at this current point in time at maintenance. Um, because what you don't want to do is diet from, let's say, 270 pounds down to 200 pounds over the course of six months to a year. And then once you're at 200 pounds, not recognize that your maintenance ener- energy intake is two-thirds of what it used to be. Mm-hmm. at least temporarily, and have no idea how to eat, eat for that, you know, and doing something like going right back to where they started. Because when you take these extreme approaches, you basically only have two settings. You know, hardcore deficit, which looks like, you know, I'm protein shakes, chicken breasts, broccoli, carrots, um, maybe some potatoes and asparagus and other greens and salads and nothing else, or kind of whatever. Right or, or whatever kind of is, is how they're maintaining this high body weight, and there's no gray zone, so there's no skill set of what they should go back to, and the one thing you know for sure is at the end of this long period they lost 70 pounds is it is just a matter of time before they are unable to sustain the diet that was a deficit for them that got them to that point. So what they need to develop is a skill set in the middle, and what does it look like to restructure my diet towards maintenance and sustainability long term? And without practice at that, by just taking this extreme approach um, to get there, uh, you shouldn't expect them to be able to do it. Uh, So I think the, the goal is to encourage a mindset to where they're focused on getting there at whatever time point with no rush and learning how to modify their lifestyle versus optimizing kind of the fat loss period and getting there as fast as possible. And then instituting purposeful periods where they're stepping away from the diet and just living life with the goal of not backsliding or backsliding minimally. And then, you know, asking them to be not intentional during that process like they are during the fat loss phase of getting your cardio, hit your macros or whatever, but intentional towards thinking about, okay, I was on 1800 calories last week and I was losing a pound and a half a week. You know, I'm killing it. Now I'm up 750 calories per day. I'm on 2,500 calories, what can I work in while still maintaining, like like I talked about earlier, that default diet, that skeleton of my diet, and on top of that, not necessarily always having treats, but maybe having treats on the weekend, Friday or Saturday night, and then on a day-to-day basis, you know, having 2,200, 2,300 calories because I know that's going to get up to 3,000 or whatever. That's just a random example, but being able to game plan around maintenance intake at this new level of uh, body mass and incorporating that into something that could be viewed as oh this might be sustainable long term so that that skill set is then carried over for when the diet does hopefully end and they move to that maintenance phase so that looks a lot different than kind of the let me hit pause and do this annoying mini cut thing and then get back to gaining because my goal is muscle mass Um, now that person who has to go from 270 to 200 who then inevitably will hopefully maintain it and then eventually decide you know what now I wanna actually think about being a bodybuilder and spend my time putting on size and controlling body fat, then they will start shifting over to this new relationship. Um, and I've seen that many times, you know, someone who mm-hmm. was very overweight as a teenager and in their early 20s, they get to a point where they're controlling that body weight and then they decide, you know what, I wanna put on some muscle mass and then that next journey is their late 20s and their early 30s of understanding what this relationship with many cuts look, looks like. And you can ask them and they will tell you that they're two very different things. So I think sometimes the lessons of bodybuilders tries to get ported over to general fat loss. And I think on average, that goes pretty poorly.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that reminds me of something I've been noticing at work, which has found this really striking. But I've I've been working at the Children's Hospital this last month, and I was there last year as well while I was in contest prep. Mm. And I was, you know, it was like chicken breast and vegetables. And... I remember they would always be, you know, they would always like be curious about what I was eating and coming back this year, like I'm back to bulky. I'm normal. And they, like I just found it really interesting how everyone would just come over and be like, I want to see what Bill's eating. And they would be shocked because I would be eating normal foods. Like I'll have pasta and chicken legs and some vegetables and fruits and just totally, you know, normal stuff. And they would be shocked. They'd be like, what, I didn't think you could eat pasta, or uh, they we'd have catered-in food and sandwiches, and I would go help myself, and they'd be like, what, Bill's going to the to the catered food? And they expected me to, you know, year-round 365, always be on this extreme diet, because that was their impression of what was required to have a nice physique, or, you know, to be in decent shape. And I think that is a yeah big misconception out there that people have, where they see that, They don't see it as this within the realm of normal.
1: Absolutely. Anyone who is bodybuilded through a, who has a social environment around them where that's visible has experienced exactly what you're talking about. And I've experienced it for 17 years, uh, sorry, 16 years uh, of, of competing and You'd be like my family still has that, like, you know, like yeah. we get together over the holidays. And this is like my this is my fifth contest season. You know, I've done I'm by the end of the season, I think I'll have done 20 shows. You know, they've known me since I was competing at the age of 24 and now I'm 40. <laughs> and they'll be like, oh, can you can you have pie this year? And I'm like, yeah, I'm not in prep. I'm good. Oh, so you still have pie when you're not in prep. and I'm like, yeah.
0: Like, why not? You know? like <laughs> I see that my grandparents are never going to grow out of it.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I'll even tell them, you know, I, I could have pie during prep, too. I just don't have as much of a budget to work with. And I try to use analogies. Like, if you think about it, like, during prep, I'm still living in the same world, same body, still with very similar goals, long term. It's just that imagine that I have, you know, I got fired from my job and I got picked up as a temp at two-thirds of my normal income. So... I'm dealing with a, a, so if I, if I have this very expensive quote unquote pie, it just means that tomorrow at breakfast and, and, and lunch, I'm going to have a can of tuna and a scoop away and not much else. And that's not worth it for me, but I could have this pie just to be clear, you know, there's nothing magic <laughs> about the pie and they nod. And then I know like next year I'm going to have the same conversation with them. Right. You know? So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Came to dinner with the grandparents the, the other weekend they're they like, oh, we, we have some food for you, Bill. We have, you know, just grilled chicken and plain boiled vegetables with no oil or sugar added. <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 I want some normal food, please. And you,
1: yeah, you're you like, well, cool. I guess I'll get some, like a milkshake on the way home, you know? So, <laughs> no, it's funny. W- one thing I do try to do is... Uh, When I'm in prep, I will try to have small amounts of foods that people think I typically can't have in front of them as almost like an educational tool. So like, oh, like, yeah, I'll have half a cookie, you know, something like that, just to show that it's like, oh, it is just moderation. I'm not, I don't have to change the entire food list, you know, and, um, and another thing like, like this prep, I'm not, um, I say I'm not tracking, but that almost doesn't actually accurately describe what I'm doing. I'm not using a food tracker. And I'm not, and I don't have a, a caloric goal every day. I have a range that I operate in based upon, you know, my step count, what my weigh ins have been, how I feel, what, what training I have in front of me, and um, how my weight loss has been going and how fatigued and depleted I feel and look, right? So on any given day, I might be around 1700 calories or as high as 2400 calories, right? So anyway, like, but I, I, I can't tell you necessarily in advance what my calories are going to be for every single day and I might have some structured refeeds related to when I'm training you know weaker muscle groups that I want to try to maintain my size and more strategically but from a general philosophical perspective I'm not quote unquote tracking so it is I think useful from an educational standpoint for people around me to see me do that because then I'm not whipping out my phone and the food scale and all the things I've done in prior preps where I'm still explaining, oh, I could have this, and I can actually show them numerically that I don't have the budget for the pie, but now I could decide to have that pie on Thursday, and I go, all right, well, I guess on Friday, my calories are like I'm I'm not going to have the refeed I was planning. I'm having it right now, and it's a little I'm a little more flexible, you know. So uh, anyway, that that's a bit of a tangent, but it that that has been this this is the first time I've done a completely non-tracked uh, prep uh, while. Yeah, 2019, I did it through like the first three months. And now I'm already into, let's see, February, March, April, May, June, July. I'm already in my sixth month. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, saying you're not using a macro calorie tracker is incorrect because you are the macro calorie tracker. I am the tracker. <laughs> yeah, I can't help it.
1: Yep. Um, and I have had to a little bit because I'm participating in some studies but uh, that, that require a little more t- tighter control over that for my students. But, um, but yeah, it's, that's the only reason I am.
0: But I do like what you mentioned about deliberately showing people that flexibility, almost from an educational standpoint, I actually, like that we're talking about this because for anyone listening to this, if you're listening to this podcast, you have more nutritional knowledge than 99% of the population. And I think it's important as bodybuilders for all of us to be educators to people around us. Right. Where, you know, it's it's busting those stereotypes.
1: Yeah. And I think it comes with walking a fine line of meeting people where they're at. Um, I think like like Alberto Nunez would tell you this, that back in the day when he would post inflammatory pictures of Pop-Tarts that he was including in his diet, I think there was some value in it because some bodybuilders purposely hit stop on their own learning. They were like, no, here's the list of bodybuilding approved foods. And when macro tracking came out, it wasn't an alternative or an improvement. It was like, oh, and I will hit specific macros, right? So I'm like, this is a, a tool to be more restrictive, not a tool to increase flexibility. And he was trying to show them, like, like look, you can reach elite-level conditioning and look like I do and coach athletes, and you can include foods that aren't on this list. And that was a revolutionary thought. But it pissed off some people, and a lot of people didn't get it. Like, they didn't have the context to understand that that was on top of fruits, vegetables, and all these other things. So... He, he would tell you now that if he could go back, he would provide a little more context around those images and not just mm. be like,
0: yeah. I ate a Pop-Tart, style <laughs> on you. donut.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it, it, it's like, you know, <laughs> a weird flex. But like um, <laughs> in the bodybuilding community, it, it is a flex that, that, that kind of makes sense. But it, I think I don't want to flex on people with my ability to be the tracker and to uh, auto-regulate my nutrition through prep. I want it to be something that is helpful. But I also don't want a first-time competitor to think, oh, I should be doing that. Um, at most, I would say that you know they should know that that is an option and that if they build the self-awareness and uh, internal self-regulation and they get in tune and can have some very strong pattern recognition and associative awareness between how they feel, how they look, their intake and also become like you said a uh, a tracker like where you look at foods and you're within 90 percent accuracy of at least the calorie content if not you know the protein and rough carb fat breakdown for most foods that you eat some things I don't know like the one consequence and this is a total t- side tangent mm-hmm. of of not eating out and getting like pasta and stuff like that and, and eating kind of like a bodybuilder all the, all the time is if you put like you know a, a pasta dish in front of me I'd be like I, I, I don't know what the calories of that are <laughs> you know so anyway, um, but for the food that I typically eat, yeah, I'm 90% accurate. So those are the skills that I need. I need to both be able to, to track without a scale and a tracker. And I also need to be able to have a very strong personal awareness of how I feel, how I look, and which tr- and also prospectively thinking about, oh, these training sessions, right, I will do better with this amount of food, I'm gonna train at this time, here are my goals. Next week, I'm gonna start with a tough upper body session. I'm looking flat and I've been losing successfully. So let's actually take a two day diet break this this weekend. I didn't need it last week because I wasn't looking this flat, I felt fine. So I'm I'm assuming I'm not, you know, carb depleted in, in my upper body. And then thinking about, okay, and how does that relate to the next 14 weeks of fat loss that I need to have to get shredded on stage on September 30th type of deal. So like all of that calculus, um, needs to be able to happen without a spreadsheet in front of you or a, a macro tracker before you can utilize the skill versus just going like, oh, y'all bitches need a tracker? Nah, I can do this all my head. You know, <laughs> like that's not helpful. That's just me bragging, right? So I think I think you have to control what information you give and what context you have to be an effective educator. That's true of anything. Um, but I think in this context, knowing what that looks like is, is important.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then one thing one last thing I wanted to bring back to is coming back to kind of the advanced bodybuilder conversation in terms of planning mini cuts mm. for the person who is using them to allow them you know buy them more bulking time. What is the how do you see the trade off between more aggressive, shorter mini cuts and, you know, or and like and timing them, you know, farther apart versus closer together, like having a more aggressive cut? less often versus a a smaller cut more frequently?
1: I think the moderating variable here is how lean they are. So if we're playing around in high body fats, it probably doesn't matter. Um, I really don't think when I'm in the high 90s, you know, 35 pounds over stage weight, that me dieting on 1,800 calories for four weeks, I'm going to lose much muscle mass. And if I do, I'm going to get it back in a week. Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. you're just so much more resilient to fat loss. However, when I'm... At 90 kilos, you know, or 88 or 87 or something like that, doing that will potentially have a negative impact. Mm. I can actually see the flatness in my physique and notice the performance decrements uh, within, like, at least acutely. Um, Ultimately, what it comes down to is while we have basically unlimited ability to store adipose tissue, there are rate limiters to how much adipose tissue you can liberate for energy. I don't have any hard equations. I think some people have tried to derive this and try Mm. to figure out like how much energy can you liberate from your fat stores based upon your current fat stores, right? But I think it is intuitive and very logical and physiologically based in our understanding of how the body operates that when you have a smaller store of body fat, you can only liberate so much at a time. So there's a reason why when someone has six pounds of fat left on their body. You're like, oh, that's six weeks of dieting, right? Pound a week, sweet. No, no, it's absolutely not. If you try to lose a pound a week when you only have six pounds of body fat left on your body, you will get really depleted, lose some body fat, and then start losing muscle tissue. You'll mm. eventually get there. Like at the, at the end of the six weeks, you'll probably only be down like three pounds of body fat, though. And if you did lose six pounds, that's going to be like another two pounds of glycogen and one pound of muscle and three pounds of body fat down. So there's a reason why you see. Nearly stage conditioned bodybuilders Requiring them to diet Twice as long as you might think To get as lean as they need to And it's really not that bad Like when you think about it Because when you lose a pound When you're six pounds over stage weight You can immediately see it It's one-sixth of the body fat on your body But when you are losing a pound When you're 30 pounds over It is much different, right That is one-thirtieth Of the body fat on your body And you can't even tell, you know so, so anyway, I think, uh, to, to get back to your question, I think this is very much moderated by how, like how close are you to your lower intervention point? And if you're close, I wouldn't advise aggressive mini cuts. I think you probably want to be a little more, uh, conservative and maybe spend closer to six to eight weeks versus four. However, if you're relatively high in body fat and you're deep in the off season, like get in, get out, get dirty, you know? Like I've even seen people just go keto for four mm-hmm. weeks and just mm-hmm. basically eat, you know, a moderate fat, high protein diet and they're in like a thousand calorie deficit every day mm-hmm. for, for four weeks. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. Um, when you're carrying a lot of body fat. And the things you monitor are, you know, can I sleep? Do I feel okay? Am I getting food focused? And can I perform in the gym? And if the answer is yes to I mean well, those are Two yes or no questions in both of those. If you can perform well, I'll just answer it more specifically. If you don't feel really food focused, if you can sleep well and you feel okay and you're not fatigued, then more power to you. There's no problem, right? You won't. It's not like you're going to be losing muscle mass and not knowing it. Yeah, that is something you you will feel, so uh, or at least feel the indicators that your training is 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 getting worse. So I think for people who find themselves acutely uh, vulnerable to short-term acute shifts in energy status then you want to go more conservative um so for example in my experience some people are like oh if i don't get you know a pre-workout meal i notice that my performance is a lot worse those are not good candidates for aggressive mini cuts that's Mm. kind of one thing that co-varies together like for me to be honest it really doesn't matter what i have before i before i work out i notice a difference if i'm first thing in the morning fasted training or anything else but no other differences besides that whether you gave me a massive bolus Um, I can sometimes notice it after two hard days of dieting and then the next day, but I'm pretty resilient to acute fluctuations in energy status as far as my performance in the gym. If someone else is not, and they do notice uh, that acute fluctuations in energy status impacts performance, that means they're probably going to get negatively impacted by a large deficit. And if you do that for four weeks, that might add up to a little something that's meaningful. So I would probably recommend they not be as aggressive.
0: I like that as an indicator where Mm -hmm. I just noticed this the other day, but... I like woke up and had some some chicken and went went off to my work and I was planning to like bring some fruit with me to eat on the way and then I like forgot it and I was like oh I don't have any carbs in me, and like the workout was totally fine like I had heavy RDLs like it was great but if I'm in a dieted state if I was in late in contest prep then that would have been like lethal. (laughs) Yes,
1: and so so you're you're probably somewhere in the middle but but closer to being affected by acute energy status. one thing I've noticed, and this could be just complete bullshit and just me association, making associations, but uh, young Asian men who are relatively lean walking around, they don't do well with large deficits. That's one thing I've noticed. And mm-hmm. they seem to be very responsive to carbohydrates. That's just one of those things that I picked up as a coach. Um, I'm about to get canceled for being a racist. But I, I just have noticed that. like, th- like If they don't have a pre-workout meal, especially in prep, like you were saying, they get negatively impacted by that. Um, I haven't noticed that quite as much with like Caucasian dudes for some reason. Um, And then one thing I've noticed is that women more often do poorly as well with acute changes in energy status. Um, Mm. Like fasted workouts typically go better for men on average, better than women. I don't think it's an accident that the IF crowd is dominated by men. You know, people who like, no, I just have coffee and I train, you know, Um, that often goes poorly for, for a lot of women, not all. And just like I said, not all Asian men should expect that, that they, they have to have carbs before they train. Um, but that is something that like on average, if I was to guess, if you just showed me someone, uh, some aspects of ethnicity and some aspects of sex, uh, I predicts that. But for the most part, this is something you should know. And if you don't know, it's probably not a strong in- indicator for you.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. It'll be one of those things where yeah we just don't have much data on it and but you do see some of these the higher level prep coaches like cliff wilson will talk about that he's noticed trends between yeah. different you know nationalities of people which i totally believe in i mean people have different physiology based on mm-hmm. genetics
1: yeah cliffs so. talked about uh needing to be a little more careful with sodium in his uh black athletes um which is something i've thought about and i'm like hmm interesting like like there is actual data on this impact of sodium on uh, on blood pressure uh, that differs racially so it it's not a completely unreasonable thing and and ultimately we're just noticing associations these aren't necessarily anything more than that they're anecdotes but if you stay in the game long enough you start to see these patterns and it could just be your sample size it could be sampling variance it could be your own personal biases which i'm totally open to Um, but at the same time it can be helpful if you don't have other data to go off from the person and they're not sure, like if it's their first prep uh, you know, or their first off season where they're doing mini cuts and you go, well, I don't have prior data to inform what we're going to do, but based upon you know what I've heard from these other prep coaches like a, like a Cliff Wilson or a Bill Wong or an Eric Helms, I'm going to start with a less aggressive mini cut approach for this person or more for this person. And then yeah, I'm happy to be proved wrong. And then we adjust from there. But I have a higher probability, maybe, of starting with with those and getting it right,
0: uh, which which everyone would prefer, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so that was awesome. I think we'll leave it there for now for the fat loss discussion. We'll pick it up next time. But Eric, just a little update from you in terms of how are things going? I know you're competing in powerlifting this weekend, which is wild.
1: Yeah, well, I'm glad we saved the, uh, the, the sex and race comments for the very end of the podcast. Means, uh, I'll... <laughs> Don't worry, <we> I'll <laughs> no it. No, no. no one just tuning in will, uh, will, will have heard that the first thing out of my mouth. But, um, but no, my, my contest prep's going well. Like I mentioned, I started dieting in mid-February. And as we record this, it is m- first week of July. Um, my first show is September 30th. I'm competing in Christchurch at the uh, WBF New Zealand show, um, it is a pro qualifier. I judged at it last year. There were some very, very tough competitors who came out. It's the first time we've had a WNBF show in New Zealand was last year. Uh, it would have happened earlier, but, if co- but, f- but for COVID. And we've also got a new WBF affiliate being ran by some very good folks in uh, Australia. And that is also a potential show that I'm doing at the end of uh, October. So I've got a bunch of shows lined up. I'm basically competing every week or every other weekend from September 30th all the way to WNBF Worlds, which I believe is the second or third weekend in November. Um, and that might be my largest break between shows, would be after the uh, October 28th uh, Australia show in Brisbane and Worlds, which is in Seattle. Um, but I think that's three weeks. It might might be only two. But anyway... Um, so yeah, and along the way, I'm also doing an 83 kilo M1 that's Master's one, because I'm 40 now, uh, competition. Um, competing in the open as well, um, but that's in like two days, or three days, excuse me, that's North Islands, which is kind of like a sub-national event. You can set national records there, not that I will be. Um, but it's, uh, it, it's a pretty, pretty competitive competition. There's like 160 competitors, and anyone from the North Island uh, provincial uh one uh, provincial federations can compete in that i'm looking forward to it so yeah i've i've been balancing uh powerlifting training along with bodybuilding training and kind of wishing that i had been at a, like a peak of my powerlifting to maintain more of my strength going down because i've maintained the majority of my strength except for maybe 10 kilos on bench as i've lost you know thir- uh, 13 kilos of body weight thus far which mm-hmm. is decent uh, but I wasn't at my peak strength, so it makes me think like, man, I could actually have a pretty decent total at 83 if I just built it up first and then held on to it as I dieted. But as it stands, I'm basically just kind of holding serve as I, as I drop weight, um, maybe put a little bit on, on, my, on my deadlift, but, uh, but from a depressed state. So anyway, um, things are going well. Like I said, I have not been tracking. Uh, I'm probably 7 to 9 pounds over stage weight, so 3 to 4 kilos and um, I'm in the mid 90s right now, so 93.7 this morning, two days in a row, which is kind of like my carb repleted, uh, more food volume in the gut um, body weight right now. And I'm actually doing a gut cut the next three days. So I'm eating like chocolate bars in place of my fruits and vegetables and having nice. my protein largely consist of whey protein shakes. Um, just so that the bulk, my my food weighs you know a third of what it normally does. So I will probably wake up tomorrow, you know, 500 grams lighter, and then see that repeat again, and then I'll be able to make weight without actually being in a deficit. So I'm on a diet break this week, as well as a taper, which essentially focuses on a deload for the competition lifts, so that I'm feeling nice and fresh on game day. So uh, that's where I'm at, um, balancing that with my travel schedule, and so far so good. And I think the flexible approach that I'm taking, that's more "Quote unquote intuitive" has been really helpful for that. Um, you know, for example, Alberto, who I always consult with when I when I prep, he's basically my coach. Uh, when I went to Malta to coach at IPF Worlds, I had the pleasure and privilege of being part of the Canadian team as the personal coach for Jessica Bittner. Um, I was trying not to lose weight while I was there. But powerlifting meet coaching and being around a really cool area and going mm-hmm. to all the sessions, I was clocking nearly 10,000 steps a day. So I inevitably I lost weight while I was in Malta for the eight days that I was there. I came back about a kilo lighter, even though I was trying to eat at maintenance the whole time. Um, so you know some of that is water differences, but I probably lost close to two pounds of body fat while I was there unintentionally. So that's the kind of thing where you know you live and learn and and you adjust, and that I think I'm served by the fact that I took a more
0: intuitive approach have there been any specific modifications you've made to your powerlifting training to accommodate being in prep yeah so i'm
1: kind of taking like a minimum effective dose type approach Mm -hmm. um, where i'm leveraging singles as a way to get a higher dose response between my sets so um, you know if i was really going to just focus on powerlifting exclusively i would have more back off sets, more sets of five and threes and fours uh, on top of those singles. But instead what I do is pretty much every time I do squat bench or deadlift, I start with a reasonably heavy single based upon what I think I have that day um, somewhere in the neighborhood of a you know a six to a 10 RPE, right. Um, and then after that I do some back offsets depending upon what I have going. So the only exercise that I'm actually doing a fair amount of volume with is bench press because I find it's for me a pretty good upper body exercise generally. So if I have an upper body day, it'll probably start with a heavy single on bench and then some volume work on on bench. And then I'll do my row, my pull down, my arms, my delts, et cetera. Um, But essentially what I'm doing is uh, three singles a week on bench, uh, two singles a week on either squat or deadlift, like alternated every other week. And I've only increased that slightly to where I'm basically getting two of both. Um, And in the last couple months, just because I've been getting close to comp, I've started incorporating SBD days in the morning on Saturdays to mimic what I'll be doing in competition. So I do a squat, a bench, and a deadlift in the same day. So right now, my split going into competition is I will do either squat bench or bench deadlift on Monday. And then I will do just two accessory movements after that that are bodybuilding focused. So typically like, let's say, calves and a back exercise. Tuesday is a upper body day with like uh, one uh, accessory for the lower body, and I start and I include bench on that day. I take Wednesday off. Thursday I do the opposite of whatever I did on Monday. So if I did bench deadlift, I'll do squat bench, and if I did squat bench, I will do bench deadlift, and then two accessories. Friday is another upper body day, and I typically don't bench on that day because then on Saturday I come in and I do squat bench deadlift. But I just do basically all my accessories, lower body and upper body. Um, which aren't really accessories, they're just as important as everything else as a bodybuilder on Friday. And then I have, uh, you know,
0: two slots where I have two exercises on uh, Monday and Thursday. Cool. Yeah, it's it's great seeing you, you know, modeling all these do not try at home type things with your (laughs) programming and competing in powerlifting and going, you know, untracked. So that's great. I'm stoked to see how things go and best of luck with that.
1: Well, yeah, hopefully it doesn't all collapse in front of me and you learn, oh, like, this is actually not something you should do even if you do think you have the capacity to do it. But to be honest, I think the comp's going to go pretty well on Saturday. I think I'll be totaling somewhere in the neighborhood of 570-ish. And uh, the cool thing is that the M1 records for the Auckland Provincial region, I should be breaking the bench deadlift and total. So,
0: so that's cool. Hey, here we go. That's so, right. Yeah. Make sure you check out Eric in the links in the description below. And for anyone who wants to brush up on their fundamentals, Eric wrote the books, Muscles and Strength Pyramids. So you can check those out. The one on nutrition is going to be great and covers a all, lot all of the stuff we talked about today. So thanks again for being on the show, Eric.